you for joining. Thank you so much to CV Insights for hosting us. Um, and thank you to DataFox for sponsoring us. Thank you to LaCroix for creation. Um, um, awesome. Uh, show of hands in the room. How many people here are sales leadership? Cool. Sales ops. Awesome. And then sellers, SDRs, account executives. Cool. Awesome. Welcome, everybody. Um, so this is part of a series that we try to do every quarter, in reality do more like twice a year, but we're gonna get back into a quarterly cadence. Um, and a lot of feedback that we got uh, recently was that there just wasn't enough sales technology. Um, so, anybody? The joke, okay. <laughs> um, okay, so um, there's a ton of sales technology. It's really tough to navigate. Um, what to evaluate, when, how, how to implement, how to get buy-in from executives and finance and whatever else, um, and how much technology is too much technology and, and, and all that. So um, we've did a, done a session like this, I think it was probably three years ago, and the tech landscape has changed quite a bit in sales. Um, so, so thought we'd get a group together again to talk about this a bit. Um, so I'm Tori, and I run sales operations at Greenhouse uh, for about past three and a half years and have a rock star panelist here um, to accompany me, so I'll let them introduce themselves. Hello, uh, my name is James Underhill. I manage uh, sales strategy analytics at MongoDB. Hi, my name is Ali, and I do revenue operations at Stack Overflow, and I'm very happy to be in a crowd. Who knows what that is? <laughs> Hi, everybody, my name is Scott Freifeld. I'm the Senior Director of Revenue Operations at Braze, which is a customer engagement platform. Um, awesome, so first things first, uh, just a quick rundown. How large is your organization? What is your org or your role like responsible for? And um, what is the kind of basic makeup of your tech stack? Um, who wants to start? I can go ahead. So um, my org, MongoDB is about 180 field sales reps, 50 inside sales reps, we have you know pre-sales, partner sales, uh, sales development, kind of all layered in there. Um, my role specifically is kind of looking at you know what's the general health of the business, where are the bottlenecks, how do we improve them, and like my my output is like increasing productivity, how do we increase sales productivity, um, and then I also just own anytime we're trying to like create new roles or do new things or roll out new products, like how do we put the people and process together to make it work, um, and talk about sales side. Yeah. Just Could run down what you're working with. Um, I mean, I feel like this could be a long conversation. <laughs> 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 the basics. Uh, I mean, Salesforce or CRM, um, we use for uh, sales enablement, we use Highspot um, and Mytable. We use Outreach, um, use Exactly for commissions. Um, there's a lot more, but ooh, we can talk about it. <laughs> Um, at Stack, we have our revenue operations team separated into three branches of sorts. Um, so it's separated into business operations, business intelligence, and tools and systems. And I lead the tools and systems part of that equation. Um, so that what, what that translates to in practice is, I think, primarily three things. Um, one is kind of existing managing tools and onboarding new tools. And the second part is empowering other people to 
be able to evaluate new tools with um, kind of a keen eye and know what they're looking for and try to turn that into a process that everyone in the company can follow. And third is I get um, roped into a lot of complex implementation projects where um, currently trying to implement Zora and Exactly, which is a very big undertaking. So I'm kind of leading the project planning on that aspect as well. And Stack Overflow, um, I think is interesting because we are a website for developers and we've converted that traffic into three separate revenue bearing products. So one is our talent platform where employers can recruit developers and one is our display ads business and the other is our private Q&A platform called Stack Overflow Enterprise. So we have about 120 reps selling all three products um, which helps us diversify and um, each business unit has a unique way of operating. So some business units have SDRs, some don't, some have account managers, some don't. So it's a good mix of systems. So Braze has approximately 340 employees. Um, on the go-to-market side of the house, it's probably in the neighborhood about 150 people uh, between, uh, maybe more than 200 between marketing, sales, post-sales. Um, the way that our team is set up is that uh, we have, I basically one person that's sort of managing different parts of our business. So we have one person who's managing our CRM instance, so Salesforce in this case, and then we have a deal desk manager, a sales ops analyst, a marketing ops analyst, and so on. Um, so as it relates to the KPIs and things of that nature, what we do is we align them to specific organizations. So uh, if I think about what my key role is, it's enabling our go-to-market team to operate more efficiently, which is similar to what James was talking about. And then as it relates to those specific people on those teams, it's they, my, the way that we look at the world is that those people should be plugging into those different group, into those different organizations inside the company, those different departments, and enable them to do their jobs better and more efficiently. So then as it relates to the technology stack, we then will plug in with those groups, figure out what they need, how they need, what their pain points are, and then from there we'll then evaluate different technologies and then make sure that we try to buy to the extent that we can afford it, the best possible technology. So we do two things. So as it relates to annual planning, everybody should be doing this. If you're not, um, you should. <laughs> um, the way that we do it as it relates to buy new technology, uh, I own a fair amount of the technology budget for that entire go-to-market team I was mentioning. Um, so what I do in the beginning of the year is when I'm doing my budget forecast, I will then carve out X amount of dollars. And let's say it's $400,000. I'll just put that into my budget, or it's 20,000, whatever your number is, and I carve it out and I say, this is my technology plug, and that's how I label it. 
Uh, we use adaptive um, for that. So I plug it in there and I say, we're gonna spend X amount of dollars. And then what I then try to do is I then try to then allocate that across the different parts of the org. So whether it's marketing, sales, or success, they're gonna get a piece of that $400,000. Then as business cases come up through the year, we'll then try to allocate those dollars. Typically we'll know ahead of time that there are gonna be a certain piece of technology that we want to buy. Um, so therefore we're gonna then allocate those dollars that have been budgeted to make those subsequent purchases. As it relates to non-budgeted items, so say we've blown through that budget, then we'll have to put together a full-on business case and then get that built into our reforecast, which we do every quarter, to then make sure that the business understands why we need to buy it exactly then and why. Um, and if so, and the business then believes in it, then they budget it and then we can buy it. But if we don't budget it, we're not gonna make the purchase. Um, that sounds really nice. I wish ours was as structured as that. Um, but unfortunately, I've never been given like an X amount of dollars that I can just spend without guilt. Um, so we do have an annual budget, but our VP of Finance basically never looks at it. Um, so I've tried to stra Oh, it's getting a little depressing here, okay. Um, so I try to tackle it from multiple fronts. Um, one of the most successful has been to kind of identify uh, people who can act as proxies for our VP of Finance. So I have um, someone in our legal team and someone in our finance team and someone in our InfoSec team um, who I can kind of call upon and go to him and say, hey, David, approve this. Are you good to go? And it's a 50-50 from there. Um, so kind of understanding who um, our VP of Finance trusts in terms of budgeting decisions and software purchases and trying to invoke their authority has been working pretty well for me. And um, another thing, another mis mistake that I've made a lot is explaining the need of the tool in terms that he won't really identify with or understand. Um, if I say I want to buy a tool because it's going to save me time, he might sympathize with that or he might not. But if I tie that to a larger business goal that our organization has um, and that I know is a personal priority for him, um, it will be much more likely for him to actually buy into the decision. And let's see, another thing I've done is I at least try to kind of give a very rudimentary um, ROI analysis since the VP of Finance is obviously a numbers kind of person. So if I can say, this tool will um, bring in 100 more leads and our ACV is this and our usual close rate is 5%, that means uh, 500,000 incremental revenue every month, then that just kind of speaks to him a lot more effectively. Um, so that's what I've been doing. Uh, so our process is more similar to Scott's. Um, but I would say one big difference I think is like at Mongoby we don't have like a revenue ops model. All the operational teams roll up into their respective kind of business units. So when we get an allocation for like sales budget, it's not gonna be allocated to like sales enablement tools or customer success tools, but it might get allocated to sales headcount or pre-sales engineers. Um, so a big part of and triaging the importance of a tool is saying like, is this tool worth another headcount if there's like a new market that we want to open up? Um, and it's, it's, it can be tough for finance to say that, um, you know, it can be, be tough at times to, to make the ROI analysis that it is. Um, and I think in general, it's, it's always just about 
just the, the, the lens that we look about is like, what is the, there are always tools that we want, but it's always, you know, given X amount of money, what's the most impactful thing that we can do now? Um, and so because a lot of the, like a lot of times we're working with technologies that span across different kind of functional units, you can kind of fudge it and there's, you know, there's budget, there's a little bit of budget from sales development, there's a little bit of budget from marketing ops. Um, so a lot of this kind of be able to work cross-functionally, which kind of makes it interesting and can sometimes be political. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I just got a quick follow-up. So do you all are all running organizations that are in kind of high growth, and it sounds like you also have contentious discussions to get budget. I guess that seems strange in some ways. Like we're not any different. We have the exact same thing, but be curious on your thoughts as to like why is it so hard to justify a tool and to carve out that budget in this process? Why do you think I think I'd say, you know, like to Scott's point, we, we kind of have an idea, at least at the beginning, like we start out with like a, a sales kind of buffer budget and like if things are in, within the budget, it, it's not difficult to make it, um, it's not difficult to make a case for. Um, it just becomes like when it starts like to run out, then you're like, is this the most impactful thing? There are also other tools and other ways to spend it. But I would definitely say that it's much, much easier to execute on budget decisions when you're a high growth company. So I think to that point, when you ask questions of your AEs and things like sales process and they're part of their qualification should be, does this customer have budget? <laughs> like if they have budget, that's why it might be easier for them to actually go and sign an order form with you guys. If they don't have a budget, they're gonna have to go through the business case and that just takes gonna take more time. So um, interesting juxtaposition there. Yeah, I think in my case, it's we, we've been pretty open to purchasing and using new software for the past many years. And we've gotten to a point where, where I think we have about 150 software contracts outstanding currently. So our VPs are generally not very convinced that when we say we need something, we really need it. They're always like, you have everything. What more do you need? <laughs> I was going to say, I think sometimes it's just like, creating an extra barrier, like if you really, if this is something important, like fight for it. Um, I, don't, I don't know about you guys, there's been a number of times where I'm like, yeah, I really want this, and then they're like, go fill out this 10-page document, I'm like, yeah, I don't want that one. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a good point. Um, so let's say you kind of clear that, that hurdle, um, and you know, you make a purchasing decision, um, talking a little bit about implementation and adoption. Um, there's a lot of factors that can weigh on a successful rollout, a successful implementation. Oftentimes there can be external factors, internal factors for sure, um, technical, non-technical. So just talking a little bit about like the change management aspect and um, maybe some challenges or, or um, successes that you guys have run into in that arena. Yeah, so I think um, in the vetting kind of process, we're evaluating at least initial assumptions about what we think the tools and tools or pieces of technology are going to be able to do, and those kind of feed into the models that will determine like how effective they'll be. And so it's pretty quick to determine for most things whether we think that it kind of meets the criteria. And I'm, for whatever reason, I feel like this should be like way simpler, but it, it takes getting the tool to actually realize like like oh this is how effective it is. Um, and like we do like POCs for a lot of stuff, but sometimes you just have to like 
get in the hands of your reps before you you get the feedback. And for me, most of it is like it's anecdotal, not super scientific, but it's it's um, it's pretty immediate, short term, and pretty like convict with conviction. So um, we don't have a super scientific process for a man understanding like what the ROI of a given piece of technology is. I don't is. understand what but, you um, just said. <laughs> <laughs> super scientific uh, way of justifying ROI or like measuring it, but uh, we do know that anecdotally like we do get strong feedback um, and we can kind of get a sense for whether or not we, we think it was worth it. And if it's not, then it definitely just isn't good right now. Um, we're kind of the opposite and I hope I'm not bad-mouthing our reps here, but we operate based on the philosophy of never give reps any kind of tool unless you're 100% sure about how you're gonna roll it out. Um, so we spend a lot of time planning the rollout and making sure that we actually understand the experience of a new rep who's using a new tool for the first time. So we'll go through, uh, we'll um, remove the software from our laptops and go all the way from the setup process and do everything that the rep will have to do to actually start using the software personally. Um, and because they figure out a lot of creative ways to mess up the setup process. Um, and we try to announce the rollout in as many mediums and as many channels as possible. There will always be that one guy who never reads Slack. There will always be that one guy who auto-archives emails. Um, so we have it on Slack, email, um, at our monthly all hands, um, in our knowledge management tool, and we um, host in-person trainings that are recorded. We also have documents going through the setup process. So basically we make it, we try to reduce the barrier of actually adopting and using the tool as low as possible so it actually sticks. And one thing we uh, really consider heavily in the evaluation process is how well it's gonna play into existing tools that they already use in their workflow. So if the tool has a Gmail integration or a Salesforce integration and they don't have to go outside to like another browser to open up the app, that's a huge plus for us. And we found out that it really helps reps actually use the software that we spent money on. I thought it was interesting when we were talking before too that you said that you send out like a lot of feedback forms at different parts mm -hmm. during the implementation process and then even at the time of renewal, which is something that uh, we don't have as part of our process. And Helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, my colleague Hannah there is the one who <laughs> sends out the surveys. Uh, we usually try to send it out one month after implementation, around like the six month mark, and then around the renewal mark. And what happens with surveys is that always the same vocal, angry people fill it out. So I've been trying to do kind of casual Slack polls on Fridays where I just do a quick poll. Do you actually use the software? Yes or no? What parts of the software do you like the most? A, B, C, and D. And a lot more people actually participate in that because it's just so easy to do. And that's been really helpful so far. I'm gonna steal that idea anyway. <laughs> Um, for us, uh, classic answer, it depends. Um, and I think it depends on how technical the platform is that we're actually purchasing. Um, I guess to start for us, it's like, we are probably not gonna buy any piece of software that's gonna be very, very sophisticated for somebody to use, because it's probably just gonna be, uh, it's gonna end up being shelfware for us, we're probably gonna churn after a year. Um, 
in this case, we're, we're talking about like, say, go to market uh, tech stack, right? Um, but there are certain tools that are super easy and lightweight to use. For those, we may not even, we may try to roll it out without any sort of official training. AEs are pushing us, they want us to a certain platform, we'll sort of let it ride, and then we'll set up training as needed. There are other platforms where there might be a more sophisticated rollout, in which case we'll definitely try to set up an enablement session before we issue IDs and so on. So um, it definitely depends. Uh, what we don't do as well as we should um, is probably have some sort of official process as to how we do this. Um, what is our taxonomy around? Why we do things a certain way? Um, but that's all part of growing, I suppose. Question for the panel and then pulling the audience too. Um, what, I'm just curious, what percentage of the time do you buy something that you don't ever do like a reference call or like refer to you? Like is that your biggest source of kind of like decision making criteria or is it something else? Sorry, is the, is the reference call the main decision making criteria or? Yeah, like do you, do you owe, is it part of your like process to always like talk to somebody else who's used it and get their feedback or is that just like sometimes you do it, sometimes you don't? I try to do as much as I can. Um, certainly when I'm spending over X amount of dollars, whatever that is, we're definitely gonna do a reference call. If not, more than, certainly more than one, two, or three. Um, at the same time, I do wanna be respectful of the people that we're asking about the reference calls. Um, there are reasons why you should, shouldn't do them at certain times. Do you have like a specific template that you use of like the questions you're gonna ask or the criteria, or is it kind of like free form on the situation? For me, it's free form. Um, personally, I don't do reference calls a lot because I don't like meetings. Um, but I do do a lot of research on sites like G2Crowd or um, the Modern Sales Pros email group for sales operations professionals. And for software like Zora or Exactly, where the implementation process can be a little bit hellish, I did do a couple reference calls. But it wasn't necessarily about the software itself. Um, it was more about the implementation process and how terrible it was. <laughs> um, we definitely do reference calls. Um, and it, it almost nearly always is just through people in our network. Um, sometimes with like, there are a handful of tools that use that are very small companies that like, you can't really leverage a reference call. Uh, we're going to like three or four customers. Um, but I'd also say like, on that, and you can't really, like, we've also bought tools where reference calls have been super negative. Um, it just comes down to like, what's the use case? What are we using it for? Sometimes it doesn't work for some people, um, and sometimes like there's not really a lot of options for the use cases we're trying to solve. So, yeah, just to that point, actually, to the extent that you can do a reference without actually asking the company who's trying to sell you something, so you're basically back channeling the reference call. That's actually a very effective tool. Because typically they're going to set you up with a reference who's giving you like NPS scores of like say eight, nine, or ten or something that are right. Um, so the extent that you can do some back channeling around the quality of that product. So for instance, um, I'm not going to go to the example actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the first thing I'll do is look at the logos on their website and then see if I know someone on LinkedIn or MSP or whatever it is. Um, I think every single person on this panel is implementing or has implemented some version of exactly recently, right? So if anybody in the audience is like specifically thinking about an exactly implementation, you have a whole, whole panel of experts that can talk you through the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, on that topic, um, looks like more ugly, Allie. <laughs> um, it's a tough implementation. Um, 
any tool in your stack that you absolutely could not live without. Like if you were to shut it down today, reps would lose their shit, managers would lose their shit, something would go terribly wrong. Uh, <laughs> I mean, for, for us, it's gotta be Groove, both because the product is great and because email tracking is such an essential part of the sales process nowadays. Um, I'll give Troops uh, honorable mention because I know we have some people from Troops. <laughs> For us, honestly, maybe this isn't, well, I would say LinkedIn, Sales Navigator, and we actually use, um, I mean, the LinkedIn data is so, so valuable to us, because as a like, open source software company, people list, like, as one of their skills, MongoDB. If you and companies list job positions where they require certain skills, like MongoDB, if a company's hiring for a job that requires MongoDB, they probably use MongoDB. So being able to find those things on LinkedIn is really, really, really good. Uh, source of pipeline generation. Um, and then we also just started using their talent insights tool, which isn't meant for sales at all, but we just like pirated it for sales because it'll effectively let you query um, their basically people database and just say like, hey, show me the top 100 companies in Belgium with uh, people that use MongoDB or uh, Node or have JavaScript as listed as a skill. And it's like, boom, those are great, con um, those are great accounts for us. So. Uh, LinkedIn's been super valuable. Uh, so for us, I'll just take a, just bits and pieces. So uh, at least on the sales side of the house, so I'll double down on LinkedIn. Um, we use a combination of Groove, which is great for our AEs. We also have outreach for our BDRs. Uh, the reason why we have two is just because um, our AEs just don't need such a strong like platform. It's like Groove on crack. Um, and our AEs don't need crack. Um, and then as it relates to like post-sales, um, Gainsight is uh, incredibly important for us as it relates to managing our, our install base. So one interesting topic that a lot of people have been talking about, do, do all of you use call reporting software? No. Um, the topic of call reporting software and like the, I guess, security issues around that, especially with GDPR. So was curious specifically around like how many people in the in the in the room like record their their sales teams calls. Okay. So like majority, vast majority. How many announce before the call starts that this call is being recorded or notify the prospect or customer? Minority. Yeah. No, it's like it's a real thing. So like I know for uh, how how do you guys handle that currently? Right. Um, we use Chorus AI, and it integrates via Zoom, but it has like a, a setting enabled will like flash like when you log in, uh, or when you're starting a meeting, like a flash will pop and say, hey, this, this meeting's being recorded. And it's just funny, because it's like, I'll, other reps will like prosecute on me, and it'll start, and I'm like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna just like cancel the meeting and send them my own Zoom, so they're kind of like, uh, but, it, but it definitely does it, so we're protected. So we do not use the recording software, but I'll tell you as a as a buyer, um, it actually does bother me when I know the call's being recorded, but the person on the other end of the line has not told me that it's being recorded. Or doesn't at least give me the option to opt out of the recording itself. Yeah. Um, we don't use any of the like fancy software like Chorus or Gong either, but our phone system does have a native call recording function. And we actually had a pretty extensive debate between our IT sales and legal teams on the legality of call recording. 
And I think the conclusion is that it's, it's ambiguous to everyone and it depends on how much risk you're willing to take. Um, for us, our legal team is on the pretty conservative side, so they didn't want to take any risks, especially because we have a big business presence in London and Germany where privacy is sacred. Um, so we basically turned off all automatic recording and trained our reps to um, ask the client for explicit permission. And after the call starts manual recording, they're also supposed to state that this call is being recorded with the client's permission so that it's in the recorded part of the call. Does anybody, does anybody else here like have any insight as far as legality of this stuff or you've run into issues or you're kind of just getting away with it until you don't get away with it anymore? Uh, yeah. CBI is a very aggressive GC and we have a great template form ah. for why we record. So if you want it, yeah. Oh, I actually talked, yeah, yeah, that I actually talked yeah. So we, we record for protection of our reps more than anything, right? Mm -hmm. like I, I, and, and we don't, we have got a lot of customers out in Europe, but that's the if the IP is in Europe, mm -hmm. it's not automatic mm -hmm. and the rep can ask for permission. Yeah. Uh, but anything that's local in the US other than California, mm -hmm. uh, we, we record our time. Yeah, we were putting text in like our calendar invites, but then not actually announcing on the call, which is we're definitely a change we're gonna start announcing <laughs> on the call. Um, cool. Um, I guess the last question and then we'll we'll open it up to the floor is is like around kind of the renewal process. Um, and also around like what types of deals are typically signed, like are there things you have two and three um, and maybe even longer contracts with and how do you deal with like the renewal um, decision making process? Do you, do you always evaluate competitors upon like a lengthy renewal or is that something where you'll kind of take the path of least resistance? Like what does that decision making process look like? Uh, at least from my perspective, I get to have a little fun with it. Um, we just shake people down <laughs> a little bit. This is kind of my job to do like the ROI evaluation of competitors. So like, whenever renewals coming up, it's kind of a, it's a little bit of fun. Um, but yeah, no, it's definitely an evaluation. Most often, even if there is like if the tool is working the way it's supposed to, um, even if a competitor is coming up with new features or whatever, like just the the integration costs and like the retraining and reps and stuff, we kind of like just like to keep it the way it is. Um, but, yeah, but that's yeah, kind of my little involvement. Yeah, I think we mostly rely on the reps to give us feedback, so it's very heavily based on how uh, well it was adopted and how much the reps actually rely on the tool. And one thing I've been thinking about recently is um, we have a lot of tools where there are a lot of bells and whistles, but it doesn't do the core function well. Um, I hope no one is here from ClearSide, but we initially sprung for ClearSide because there were a lot of bells and whistles, but it doesn't do the main job, which is to host web meetings very well, um, as opposed to Zoom, which just does that one thing very well. Um, so in the renewal process, I will probably switch to um, something else. Yeah, so for us, um, a couple things. One is we actually, just to add on to, we typically do not sign multi-year agreements, um, just because we want to have the at least the optionality um, of doing a review after uh, our initial term. Uh, but that being said, to the extent that we did the proper analysis the first year, 
we would expect that the first year's experience with that tool was rather positive. To the extent that it was, we are likely not going to spend the time and effort to go through the entire process again, the MSA process again, the review process again, the ROI analysis again. Sometimes the status quo is actually significantly better for efficiency. So to the extent that our vendors in-house are doing the job um, and are doing what they told us they were gonna do, and they've hit those expectations, um, we most of the time are probably gonna stick with that vendor. Yeah, I mean, you know, you think about it, like we tell our AEs, like, don't be, don't get yourself involved in like a feature on feature sale, right? Selling value and all those things. And for a vendor to come to us with like one like, like it's like a shooting star or like some like flashing light, it's like ooh, like to us that's probably not gonna do the trick. It's has to be something probably more fundamental for us to actually want to make a switch between vendors. Cool. Um, yeah, Manas, what's up? Cool. This is the open question. Yeah. Okay. Um, so question for the panelists and I guess for the room as well. Um, something we've thought about and have done versions of before is just drawing out like our marketing sales app tech stack and how the, the tools connect. Um, so I'm wondering if you've done that or maybe you've seen a good example of that in terms of how your different tools or at least parts of them are working together um, in a way that people not on your ops teams can understand what those tools uh, serve in terms of their purpose and frankly like, what your ops team manages. Um, so if you've done that, if you've seen good examples of that, what, what your advice might be, and especially what I'm curious about is how deep you go with that information um, in a way that's still digestible but, but comprehensive. Uh, I'll take that. I actually did that recently. Um, we had some larger initiatives for our business, uh, which I won't go into details there, but um, a key part of that was we had this very large tech stack and we wanted our executive team to understand exactly what we own, why we own it, why we purchase it. Um, we were also going through a process of condensing down some of our vendors. We had multiple vendors, we wanted to condense down into one. There were just a few different reasons for this exercise. Um, I just did it through Lucidchart. It was, wasn't too complex, uh, but it just showed the business from like a 30,000 foot view of what does this stack look like and what is talking to what platforms are integrated to where, um, and who's using them, right? So they group like, here's sales, and here's success, and here's our marketing team, here's a stack. Um, I didn't really go much deeper than that. Um, if I was, I'd probably do that in a separate place. Um, but it was an exercise I did recently, and it was actually quite effective. Um, for us, we, we don't have, you know, like a pretty chart, um, but we try to think of our tools along the typical marketing and sales process. So all the way from lead generation, prospecting, engagement, close, and um, account management. And that's uh, when I present something to the executive team, um, I would probably invoke that process and say, hey, see how we got like this many tools in the close stage, but barely have anything that's aiding us in the lead generation stage. So um, we definitely need a lot more support there, and that usually resonates with them. And on the integration side, um, honestly, we treat Salesforce as kind of our holy grail. Um, it's our master record. Every single data is in there, whether it's um, customer success related, marketing related, sales related. So everything has to plug into Salesforce or go through Salesforce in some way. One thing that you said that was interesting with 
though, that almost none of the actual process or workflow happens in sales. It's almost like a data warehouse, and then everything connecting to it is where the actual workflows happen, which I think is seems like a, a direction that a lot of organizations are headed in, um, since Salesforce hasn't evolved their kind of like process and workflow stuff too much. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're, we're still getting there. Uh, we still have a lot of bloated workflows and processes that we don't need in Salesforce, but we've been trying to make it so that the Salesforce system is primarily for storing or entering and housing data, and then lead distribution rules should not be in Salesforce. It should be in a separate lead assignment tool. Marketing automation rules should not be in Salesforce. It should be in HubSpot or Marketo or whatever you use. Um, and yeah, Salesforce workflows are generally not that great and it's so interdependent upon each other that it's very, very easy to break if you want to edit anything. Um, so yeah, that's been kind of the approach that we're focusing on. We kind of have a similar setup where Salesforce is kind of like the center of the universe. Um, and for better or for worse, um, it makes it easier from like a stakeholder management perspective, it's like here's one place you can go, you give access, easy to give access to people, easy to audit um, and authenticate. Um, in terms of like the, the nature of the tech stack and like how it's all mapped up, it, it is a little bit interesting when all the different owners of different parts of it report to like different executive stakeholders. Um, so like there for sure can be contention about like marketing is using Eloqua and doing things in a certain way and that pipes into Salesforce, which you know the, the admins on my team own and there can be contention between them. Um, so that is makes for an interesting uh, situation. We have questions. There's, there's, there's a lot of ways, depending on what it is. Um, I mean, there, there are tools. We, we did like a clean, big data cleanup project a while ago, um, I think with the inside view. Um, but we also, also we have a team in India and their job is to clean data. Um, so, that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, actually we... <laughs> Uh, we retained a Salesforce consulting firm um, pretty recently, and one of their biggest recommendations was to hire an analyst level person who basically is, whose primary job function is Salesforce governance. Um, so he or she will always be responsible for keeping Salesforce data clean. And um, so, or I guess we could use people in India, thank you for the idea. <laughs> um, but, Another thing, um, I actually, I'll give a quick plug for Troops. Troops is really great for that, and the way I made the case to purchase that software to our VP of Finance is we can clean up the data in there all day long, but the core problem won't be solved if people aren't entering the right data in the first place, and Troops makes that a lot easier because they allow reps to directly edit records in um, Slack, which is something that reps use all the time. And um, speaking of loaded workflows in Salesforce, that has made our instance very, very slow. And Salesforce 
um, itself is something that eats up a lot of RAM anyway. So people will usually not go into Salesforce just to like edit a single opportunity stage. So we've had a lot of cases where opportunities sit in like the 5% stage until they're ready to close. Um, so Troop solves a lot of that by really minimizing the barrier to actually editing your records in Salesforce. Um, and um, another thing we've been trying to do is just really get the sales management team to buy into the importance of data quality in Salesforce. Uh, we've been able to demonstrate how uh, Salesforce data quality really, really correlates to the quality of reporting and analysis that they can do as sales managers. And that um, really gives them a stake in um, data quality and it motivates them to actually talk about it in their one-on-ones and stuff. Um, I think there's two parts to this. Um, the first part is around the CRM hygiene. I think my guess is like everybody's gonna have this issue to a degree. I think it depends what you're talking about. Is it like account level data? Is it opportunity level data? Is it contact level data? And we could talk about all these for hours. Um, but I, I will just like like double click on this point that I just mentioned is around like if you can show really quality analysis, then people are gonna want more of that. Um, but if you can then prove that you can't do the analysis because the data is crap, then right, you can then create change management where those people that are managing AEs or managing CSMs or managing marketing will then want to provide you with better quality data. So I suppose in a way this is like treating the, the cause and not the symptom. Thanks. Thank you. Yep. Anyone? Hi, um, my name is John. Um, thank you all. This panel session has been uh, very informative and comforting knowing that there's this many people who are concerned with data integrity in Salesforce and whatnot. Um, I, we are a, a BU government um, SaaS company that sells form automation, um, e-signature, e-payment uh, software to U.S. governments. And uh, Steve and I just got the go-ahead from the CEO about a month and a half ago to go ahead and build this revenue operations team. Uh, we've been helping the marketing sales success team with all their operations and processes over the past uh, year or so. And now uh, we are finally in the process of putting this revenue operations as its unique team. Um, one of the one of the last pieces, uh, puzzle pieces that we are trying to put together is around KPIs. Now that we want to operate as a, an independent team that gets its own budget, manage all the tech stack throughout the whole you know revenue funnel. Um, I we've been thinking about um, proposing very simple. Um, ways to track our success and the, the value that we generate for the team. And in, in, in the worst case scenario, I feel like Steve and I, along with other team members, are doing all the you know menial, you know, so to say, bitch work for all the teams without necessarily getting all the credits for the, the value that we are bringing to the team. It's somewhat clear in our heads, but it's really difficult to convey to the management or leadership team. What KPIs, uh, what um, objectives that you set for all the um, ops and revenue ops teams at your companies, and how can you use it to really um, communicate the value the ops team is bringing to the business? It's a great question. 
Um, I would start by saying be careful not to overly optimize to any like proxy metrics. Um, I guess what I mean by that is like my team is as much aligned as we can be to increase sales productivity and close one business. What sales productivity? The per unit production of one sales rep. Um, and so like, I guess what that means is like specifically like, you know, we're working on something, it's not like I'm monitoring like, oh, you know, how many reports are you doing per quarter or whatever. It's just like we have this project and like were we able to complete it? Were we able to complete it in a way that satisfied the requirements of the stakeholder at that time. And so in a given quarter, we have like four or five big priorities. And so the KPIs are kind of like, uh, kind of coming downstream from those things. We're able to execute on those in the right way. Um, and then, you know, it can be super nuanced, but uh, it, it's the thing that I always think about as a manager and when I'm thinking about my own like performance is, you know, how directly is this correlating to company performance and generating money? Um, I'm, this might be a little bit controversial, but I think coming up with KPIs to um, evaluate the performance of our revenue operations team is a little bit antithetical because in my mind, um, the most important function that, that a revenue operations team can serve is to be a hub of communications between sales, marketing, IT, finance, uh, whatever departments need to be connected. And you know how how do you measure how well people communicate? Um, so it's that's very difficult. So we've kind of that's why we moved to the model of having business operations, business intelligence, and business intelligence and tools and systems um, as three separate branches in revenue operations. Um, we were first trying to come up with uh, like one or two sentence tagline that we could use to describe what we do at the company. But honestly, we do so many things that it can't really be captured with a short headline. But if I say I work in tools and systems, then usually people can connect, oh, so uh, you did that like change in Salesforce that's like benefiting my workflow greatly. If you work in business intelligence, um, they could be like, oh, you're the person who like generates the reports that goes on our CEO updates. Um, so that's been helping a lot, but honestly, it's something that we still struggle with. Um, a lot of people in the company don't really know what we do, and we're the first to get blamed when something gets wrong, it seems like. Um, so yeah, I, yeah. Um, so I have two sort of outlooks on this. The first one is, I think you're in a great spot. Like the company has now said, we're gonna invest in a revenue operations team, so you guys are already doing something right. Um, to that end, I think what you should do is, like, when I'm working with our CRO, for instance, we'll say like, the left hand knows what the right hand is doing, right? So it's like, what you should do is you should become best friends with the head of sales, the head of success, right? Help them do their jobs better, right? And if you do that, like, find out what their KPIs are. How do you line to those things? And if you do that, you're probably set in a good place. And the second part of it, for me, would be like, follow the money, right? So if you can figure out a way to get deals done faster, increase deal sizes, anything along like that nature, you will figure out what the KPIs are that will help your team figure out what your OKRs need to be. I would say, say I most, oh, go ahead. Well, you have to then advertise that fact. Yeah. And, and then if they don't respond, you need to leave. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of controversial, yeah, I would say I, I align with all of you guys. I, I literally just had to build a slide around this like last week. Um, yeah, like I had to like actually like put this in writing, so. Um, 
I kind of broke it down into four areas, which is like the metrics that every business unit that, that I'm supporting, so that's revenue, renewals, all of those top line <coughs> metrics that the board is looking at. It's the efficiency like at which we're actually achieving those metrics, so like the cost per full-time employee, the EBITDA, stuff like that. The third part was the OKR, so like are we actually executing on the thing we said we're gonna execute on on a quarterly basis? And the fourth is stakeholder sentiment, so like regularly getting feedback from the people that you support that the perceived value um, and potential areas of opportunity. So like those are kind of the four categories I broke it out into, and then sort of like within each one, um, there's like, you know, a tick deeper. Um, the quest was over here, yeah. Uh, hi, my name is Oded, I uh, work for Visible, an event technology company, and uh, my question is around reporting. So we have a problem where we have a lot of uh, tools. So for example, we're using Gainsight, and people are using that for analytics about retention. We have Looker, so leadership is looking into Looker when they want to know ARR, etc. We have Insight Squared, so some of the team is using that for a pipeline. Some of the rest of the team is using uh, Salesforce for understanding what the pipe is. So I'd love to see how you guys are handling it, what are your thoughts, because uh, we're trying to figure it out right now. I would say we're not so dissimilar from you guys. Um, some of it is in Salesforce, other bits in Looker. Um, it's not standardized in any way for us. There are obviously certain things that we can only get out of certain parts of our business. So when it comes to XYZ, it's I need to be in Looker, I need to be in NetSuite. Like, so unfortunately for us, we don't have like a master BI tool. We do use Looker, and for us, if I can get everything in Looker, that'd be the best thing ever, but we are very far from there. Um, so, as right now, we have not found the silver bullet that you're talking about, but maybe one day we'll get there. But uh, we're with you guys. We have different tools and different reports come out of each of those. Um, we use Looker as well. Um, and initially, we were thinking of it as a business intelligence tool for all of our sales staff, but then we realized we're kind of poor. So, now we only reserve it for our executive team and it's working great and for our individual reps and more kind of middle management, we've been trying to put everything in Salesforce because we made the critical mistake of building our own reporting tool. Um, word of advice, never do that. Um, so we have um, forecasting and bookings tracking, um, some stuff in our internal tool and the other stuff is in Salesforce, but we're planning to move everything to Salesforce and really centralize it there. So we're a database. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Put everything in MongoDB. Um, it, yeah, it's actually pretty great. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, like there's a ton of different systems, and like uh, my biggest probably, some of my biggest problems with like accessibility of data is just as like new things are firing up, it's like we gotta build a whole new process of mapping, standardizing, cleaning this data, getting it into a MongoDB collection and being able to map it to like our Salesforce data or, or our product usage data or whatnot. Um, and a lot of times, sales moves really fast and engineers don't move fast. And so like they take my, you know, assertiveness as hostility for some reason and uh, <laughs> they don't move as fast as I'd like them to. So like we do end up kind of like doing some workarounds and uh, Using like um, I've started using Google Data Studio, which is we use like G Suite, and it's it's free. So I've been mocking stuff up in there, but I would also advise don't build your own reporting tool. Um, but to the extent that you can get your data to talk to each other, which is like a huge problem, um, it's so valuable when you when you have it all in one place. Jerry, you have a quote. 
Yeah, actually, I, I had a question. You kind of just brought it up. Um, like when you're evaluating new functionalities and whether you want to build this custom in Salesforce or buy a plug and play app, what are the, what are you looking at to evaluate that? I mean, to the extent that we can do things in Salesforce, we have the resource. I mean, we have you know admins to do it. We we try to do that. Um, with my team, do a lot of like custom kind of analytic work. We've had them kind of engineer custom objects or other kind of frameworks for, for, for us to do things that we could really be buying tools for. Um, but it ends up kind of just being like, it's other things like, if we get 80% of this out of Salesforce with our existing like staff and personnel and not have to, to invest budget of it, let's go for it. If it's something that's gonna end up being mission critical or wherever lies, then we're probably gonna buy a tool. Um, um, yeah, I actually did a lot of research on this for our VP of Finance, and I think I read somewhere that 70% of software projects um, end up being a lot cheaper if you just buy an out-of-the-box tool as opposed to building something custom. And for a lot of the tools that we use in this room, I think that figure would be a lot higher because most of the tools that we use rely very, very heavily on getting the right data and funneling that in from another source like Salesforce. And in that case, um, if you build something custom, a lot of the times it's just not scalable. If you try to change something because your business naturally grows and changes, it will affect a lot of downstream um, data syncs and that will break everything. And um, a lot of the devs who build that custom tool will not be with the company anymore two to three years later. So it's, it's just not a problem that we want to deal with anymore. Um, so for us, we try not to buy like super point solutions like you're talking about. Um, we would probably try to build around it. Um, it would have to be something very small though. Uh, but basically what I was talking about, like for the most part, if somebody is trying to sell you software that does something, in my opinion, they probably built that company because it was solving a real problem. Um, that doesn't mean you should go ahead and buy it, but if I look at our business, it's like my company, right? So Braze is not built to build a reporting tool, right? We're not, we're not built for that. So our engine, it doesn't make sense for us to take our engineers who are built to build a better Braze platform to go build a XYZ solution that's gonna help us with reporting or whatever else. It's like, I should go buy that. Um, I will um, sort of caveat that with, when you're making the case to, to budget, so for VP Finance, wherever it is, it's you are not gonna save money by buying something, right? It's good, but you're not gonna like also lose money by buying something either. Because in reality, if you go ahead and build it, it's gonna cost you engineering resources, gonna, people are gonna quit. There's a whole <laughs> slew of reasons why you should probably not build it and you should buy it. But just make sure the business understands this is gonna cost me some money right now, but down the road, if you can think long-term, you'll see the ROI. to the acquisition of tech, when you engage with a vendor, what is the one thing that you wish the vendor did to help you <coughs> in that process? And what is one thing that pisses you off uh, that vendors do that you wish they didn't do? It's interesting because I work so much with salespeople and I know our sales process and when I speak to bad salespeople, it just drives me absolutely insane. Um, I mean, I think the number one thing they should do is just shut up. Like, ask me a question, figure out like what I want to tell you. Like, do not tell me what year your company was founded, and like 
oh, your two founders are in their dorm room, they're eating a piece of pizza, and they thought I was saying, I don't care at all. I do not care, I'll hang out. I don't have time for that shit. But like, if you want to ask me, like, hey, so you jumped on this call, why did you take this call? It seems like you must have this problem. Do you have that? Tell me it. Let's, let's talk about it. And then being able to, like, if they kind of got my interest, but one thing I've realized is as I'm, in order to like get a tool or get approval to buy, I need to convince all these other internal people. And so like I need their help, like I'll become the champion for them, but I need them to understand how to communicate with my stakeholders. Um, and you know, my stakeholders think differently than me. So they've gotta be able to like change their frame of thinking to, you know, I'm no longer a sales ops person, I'm a finance person who doesn't use this tool and will never use this tool. And, be able to kind of work with them as well. That's something where I've seen some reps have had difficulty, um, and then that can be frustrating. Yeah, it's uh, it's funny you said that about like the 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 poor AE. Um, it, I, I feel the same thing. So when an AE is all of a sudden start, starts going through this very very long discovery process, it feels like they're reading off almost like a checklist to a degree. I've probably taken that call for some reason, right? And I want it to be much more of a conversation to a degree. So when they're very call it like programmatic, um, and I feel like it's it, it doesn't feel natural. It's not a conversation. That's gonna bother me. Um, when somebody feels like they've done some research on me, they've done some research on my business, um, you can just tell there's just a better there's just a better flow of that conversation. Um, and then to to that point, when it gets actually the purchasing of it, um, I will then typically put it on that person to help me go sell this internally. Right, so even though I've carved out this budget, right, that doesn't mean I just have to go spend it, right? I then need to go get the the sales leads or the success leads or the like. They are the ones who are really going to be like, okay, you have the budget carved out and it's carved out for me in a certain way. Now we're going to decide together what to what to buy. They want me to help do that evaluation. They want me to run the legal process. They like that's what they want ops to do. Uh, but then when it comes to the actual purchasing, it's all right. Now I got to go talk to. Sam about buying this platform, help me be the conduit, right? Like, make it easy for me to go sell it internally. And if you do that, it's gonna turn out significantly better, faster sell cycle, probably more deal size. Um, I, I agree with James that I really find myself wishing a lot that sales reps were a little bit more focused. Um, I, I, I don't think anybody really wants to hear a laundry list of features, especially considering that most enterprise software does more than one thing. Um, I wish they would just ask me what um, primary pain point or need are you trying to solve with this software and just really focus on that on the demo instead of showing me like what every single button does in that software. Awesome, cool. Well, before we officially wrap up, feel free to stick around um, and, and talk to any of us or any of each other. Um, one thing we were going to do, um, and I forgot, was I was gonna ask everybody to put on their name tag one piece of uh, technology that they're currently evaluating so that it would make um, this whole like networking thing a bit more interesting if it's something you've already evaluated or, um, so feel free to make that a point of conversation. Um, and then just a few shout outs, thank you guys so much. Um, this was really insightful. Thank you to Arushi and to CB Insights for hosting and to Claire for her help setting this up. And thank you very much to DataFox. Um, they're here somewhere, grab some swag, bring it back to your office. I think. Almost all of us are using or have used DataFox at some point in time, so feel free to um, pick our brain on that as well. Um, and see you guys next time. Thanks. Mm -hmm.